Why settle for just living a good life? When you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential, learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Palvin. Thanks everybody for watching and tuning in to watching Life Optimized podcast. Today we have a really great guest who's got me inspired because I forgot who's wearing his uh, orange blocking glass. I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, but I want to introduce the great and knowledgeable Dr. Michael Twyman. And Dr. Michael Twyman is a board certified cardiologist focused on prevention, early detection of heart disease. He completed his cardiovascular training at St. Louis University and completed a four-year active duty as an internist at Naval Hospital Buford. He has been in private practice since 2012. Heart attack prevention is his passion. He utilizes the best of conventional medicine, integrative functional medicine, quantum medicine, and biohacking to get to the root cause of the patient's cardiovascular issues. Now, I saw you were in a summit for quantum medicine, so I think I'm going to ask you some questions about what that actually means, because that's also a term that's becoming more and more popular. But first, I'll let you introduce yourself. And so right now, your practice is still in St. Louis? Correct. My practice is in St. Louis, Missouri. I did all my training here, lots of family, friends here. So this has been home and just a good centrally located place. You know, we have patients, you know, mostly local, but we've had patients flying in from California, New York, they come and see us here and we take care of them and send them on back. There you go. And you do an office-based practice only or do telemedicine as well? Do both. Okay. So let's get into this. So I, Dr. Twyman has a lot of interest it's kind of first from that bio. We're going to first going to go into a deep dive in the questions I always get. And I always have to sometimes check out his site to see in terms of what is the main, what should we be looking at when you're looking at cardiac markers is just doing an LDL and HDL, what you should be doing in 2022. The answer is probably not. Are there new tests that are kind of the, some doctors think are necessary that I know Dr. Twyman has talked about in his all the social media and interviews. So we're going to go into that. And then he has probably the most gigantic red light I've ever seen. I don't know how you got into your office, but just to get any of his social media and you'll see this was a six feet tall, eight feet tall, eight feet tall red light, which I'm just jealous. I mean, I want that too. So we're going to do some delving into some red light therapy and how that's beneficial, not only for heart health, but just in general. So let's get started here. So first I want to do the questions I'm always getting asked next. This seems to be kind of a split now, especially the cardiologists I talk to. Some are, I don't call them old school, but are more traditional. That is, okay, we're going to do an HDL and then we're going to do your HDL triglyceride ratio and see, and that's all we're looking at. And then other doctors, they're looking more like some doctors and my philosophy to a certain extent is looking at other markers like apolipoprotein B and CRP and like protein A and small dents and all those things. So is it one or the other? Is it you need to kind of pick from both baskets? If a regular patient, no major cardiac history, not a huge family history, what should they be a patient be looking for expecting to uh, in terms of getting the data to let them know where they are? cardiac wise? Sure. And it's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, atherosclerosis, you know, hardening of the arteries is a, you know, number one killer of men and women worldwide. And it's a process that starts in your teenage years. It usually doesn't come clinically out until you're 40, 50, 60 years old, but it's really starting when you're a teenager. So the earlier we can kind of get our hands on people and say, you know, do you have a genetic issue that might put you at increased risk where you have like FAH or familial hyperlipidemia or LPLA? Well, they might need to do a little bit more early on, but the average person probably at the age of 40 should probably consider getting assessed for their cardiovascular health because a lot of people can look fit on the outside, but their insides are really uh, inflamed and you know likely to have a more plaque than they expect. I mean, the 
classic example is, you know, Bob Harper, very fit guy on the outside, the guy from the biggest loser, yeah. had a heart attack in the gym. And fortunately a medical student was there to resuscitate him and ended up uh, doing pretty well after the heart attack. But, you know, your question is very pointed in that, you know, it's more than just labs. I used to be, you know, you have to look at what are actually the arteries doing with that information that's floating through your blood. So kind of two workhorse tests really are kind of the carotid intimomedial thickness test, which is an ultrasound of the artery of your neck looks for any salt plaque in the arteries, but also looks at the thickness of the arteries, which is a marker of inflammation in the artery. And then the, uh, the CT coronary calcium score, low dose radiation scan of your heart arteries, looks to see if there's any calcium in the arteries. If you got calcium there, you got plaque there, more calcium, more plaque. So those are kind of the workhorses for looking for plaque in the arteries. And then yes, there is a whole host of biomarkers that you can check. And it definitely is more complicated than HDL cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. There's maybe three to 400 different things that are going to contribute to the plaque forming in your arteries. And you mentioned it. If you're only going to check one lipid metric, really just be checking apolipoprotein B. You can get majority of the risk, you know, if you just look at that number. I knew I liked you. There we go. Okay. I agree. I agree totally. So you mentioned, I'm going to, you mentioned it now. So I'm going to bring it up now in terms of calcium scoring. So I know that again, there seems to be some, a split. Canoa study just came out. There's people who can have a calcium scoring of zero and still have risk and vice versa is. So again, I know that luckily that test has become more and more common and more and more accessible. To a lot of people I'm in Manhattan. So, I mean, everything's accessible here and then you're in a major city as well. But is that something that most people should be asking their doctor for at this point to at least get some guideline to it in terms of where they are plaque wise? Correct. I mean, it's a good starting point. You know, but, you know, I tell people, you know, if you've already had an event, you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, you know, you've have, you know, bypass surgery, you're already high risk. You don't need the scan. This is for the person who's just wondering like, Hey, my cholesterol is quote high. You know, my doctor's considering putting me on statin therapy or other medicines. And, you know, I just want to know, you know what is the risk benefit of going on lifelong medication? The calcium cord test is a good tiebreaker for sometimes for those individuals, but it's not a perfect test because it's only looking for hard calcified plaque and that's a later stage finding. So it's going to still miss some people who have just soft plaque. So the carotid scan can kind of add a little bit more information with that. So if you have both are normal, you're less likely to have a lot of soft plaque in the coronary, but there's definitely a new novel test called the clearly CCT angiogram, uh, which actually looks at the, the soft plaque in the coronary arteries. And so for the right individuals, you know, adding the IV contrast uh, may be beneficial. Is that widely available now? Because I know I've heard of it, but is it pretty widely available now? I mean, you have to go to a center that's, you know, well-versed in doing just a regular CT coronary angiogram. And then once they have those images, then they can uh, send them up to Clearly, which is a company that has a AI machine learning algorithm that interprets the images and gives you a total plaque volume and tells you essentially, is the plaque calcified? Is it soft? Or is it low density soft? And it's really that low density soft plaque that's much more likely to be the problem. Okay. No, again, I heard that kind of burgeoning through, but I know it's kind of being used more mainstream. So you mentioned a couple of things, a couple of COVID questions I want to, markers I want to bring up for patients. Is CRP still now, now with all these other new markers and new tests are out there? I know CRP three, five years ago was more commonly looked at. Is that still there? Is that kind of, is that again, a part of the bigger equation in terms of what to look for in terms of cardiac risk? It's a good starting point. You know, the high sense of ECRP should really generally be under one for the majority of people. Yeah, I usually don't get too concerned if it's elevated at one time, but it's more the consistency that it's elevated. But it's not specific to the, the cardiovascular system. So it could be, you know, the person, you know, has sleep apnea. That's a frequent one that is going to be up and you don't expect it. You know, if they've had a recent infection, you know, they have an autoimmune condition, CRP will be up. You know, the artery is just getting to get in it just like the innocent bystanders when the CRP is up for long periods of time, but there are other markers and 
kind of two biggest ones I usually look at is the uh, LPPLA2, which is also known as the plaque test, and myeloperoxidase. Those two, if those are in the kind of the green zone in most of these labs, then the arteries probably aren't as inflamed. But if you have those in red and CRP red, that's kind of like a three alarm fire and you really need to dig in. Why is that person so inflamed? Yeah, I love those two tests. I widely run on patients. And just so people know who are watching, there will be a transcript of this. I know some of these terms may be things you've never heard of before, the things you should know about, so they'll be available. Don't really have to scurry away and get a and pen and paper. Again, we're going to link you to Dr. Twyman's website at the end as well. So just listen and learn, because Dr. Twyman has a really great way of taking the high-end knowledge and making it usable for anybody who's understanding what they should do. So I'm going to, the again, you probably get this question all the time. I think you may have spoken at some of these events now. Now there's the other big debate between keto and fat. And then do you worry, quote, I'll put the air quotes here, about the LDL being high if there's no other risk factors? Where do you fall on that argument there? Because I know I get that at least once a week. You probably get it more than I do. I get it all the time, probably at least once or twice a day. And so there are different camps that look at this LDL C as being, has to be zero or, you know, it doesn't matter. And it's definitely going to be somewhere in between. You know, I just do the kind of analogy, test don't guess. You know, the only way that plaque gets into your arteries is that an ApoB containing particle drop that cholesterol off in the artery wall. So that's the only quote bad cholesterol you have is cholesterol building up in your artery walls. So, you know, some of these lean mass hyperresponders, keto people say like, well, my LDLC of 200 milligrams per deciliter or 300 milligrams per deciliter doesn't matter because I have a calcium score of zero. I just tell them that you're not late to the game. You don't know if you're early to the game unless you do further testing and look at the salt plaque in your arteries, if there's any inflammation in your arteries. But there is an article that just came out August 5th that says that maybe the guidelines are being way too conservative because a natural LDLC in infants is between 20 and 40 milligrams per deciliter. And as I said earlier, atherosclerosis usually starts in your teens and 20s. So it's a time under tension analogy. It's the longer that LDLC is elevated, which is mostly a proxy for ApoB. You know, if you have a high LDLC, most of the time you're going to have a high ApoB, but not always. That's why you have to check the ApoB because in certain people, they're discordant. They don't actually track with each other. But in those high-risk individuals, they probably do need to have that lower LDLC or ApoB to prevent further buildup of plaque in their arteries. So, you know, it really depends on what the arteries are doing with that ApoB. Now, if you don't have plaque in your arteries, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. But if you're, you know, I saw somebody earlier today who's 38 years old, had a very abnormal scan that ApoB makes a difference to that person. Their number needs to be lower so that they don't continue to add plaque to their arteries. And again, this is where, and you play both sides of the fence too, like a time page, you play traditional and functional. So what is your goal when somebody does have, again, this is not probably too complicated. We could go down the rabbit hole for two hours here. When somebody does have an abnormal cholesterol panel, you want to treat either medicine or supplements and or lifestyle changes, we'll get into in a second. How low do you feel comfortable going? Because we do need cholesterol. And again, this is, I know, a big debate of, is there too low in terms of cholesterol? Is it kind of depending on how many risk factors you're dealing with it or that the cholesterol that we're reducing is not the cholesterol needed for the memories? I've heard so many different positions on it. Is there any place that we're too low? After reading this review article from August 5th, I don't think there's a too low for the majority of high-risk cardiovascular individuals. So no, I don't believe that every single person has to try to drive the numbers down this far. But if you already are demonstrating you have plaque in your arteries, 
you probably want to have an ApoB somewhere in that 60 or lower range. So that's a kind of more aggressive target than most people are shooting for. But one thing that I didn't definitely learn when I was in medical school or in internal medicine residency or even my cardiology fellowship was that there's different pools of cholesterol. And what the cholesterol is floating through your blood is a small percentage of your total body cholesterol. The majority of your cholesterol is inside your cells. Now, your brain has its own circulation of how it distributes cholesterol. You know, your brain isn't getting cholesterol from your liver per se. It, you know, it's making its own supply because it's so critical to making your hormones and neurotransmitters and cell membranes that you can't wait for other things to deliver the cholesterol there. So lowering your blood level cholesterol, you know, from 200 milligrams per deciliter to 100 milligrams per deciliter is really only lowering your total body stores by like a percentage point or two. So it's not going to, for the majority of people, cause issues. But you know. Are there potential side effects of certain lipid lowering therapies? Absolutely. We see those every day in clinical practice, but there's different ways you can do analysis that, you know, from genetics and are the person vitamin D deficient or their CoQ10 levels low? Do they have, you know, you know SLCO1B1 genes? You know, that determines, okay, what treatments do you actually want to consider for this person? But at this point, I don't have a too low ApoB that I'm concerned about. So you mentioned it, I was going to bring it up later, but you brought it up. So where in your diagnostic continuum there do you start do you do genetic testing on everybody only if they have a family history if they ask for it when do you add that in there it's a combination of those but i mean the majority of people that are coming to see me are interested in how healthy are my arteries and some people are coming to me with you know these you know extremely high lipid panels on a keto diet or you know uh you know, lean mass hyperresponder type of pattern and so yeah, we will check genetics in those individuals so checking apolipoprotein e is a standard you know there's a test that um, Boston Heart can do, the cholesterol balance test, which really can tell you that's really very, very useful to have for people to say, is it a hyperproduction issue that your liver's cranking out too many of these ApoB particles? So like too many cars are leaving the factory or is it an issue with the intestines hyperabsorbing the cholesterol? So too many things are getting recycled, which shouldn't be recycled. So you can figure out which lever you need to pull on more. Is it, you know, lower the production or block the recycling? And then the other genetic markers really depends on family history, but everybody I'm checking LPLA because 20% of the population has this. And it's the number one genetically inherited lipoprotein that increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. So everybody's getting LPLA. Most people are getting APOE. And then the rest of the genes really depend on the story. You know, if you've got a strong family history of early cardiovascular disease, 9P21, KIF6, those are kind of the big predictors. And then there's a couple of different other companies that people really want to go deep into the, the rabbit hole of genetics. There are so many tests out there now that have come out in the last year or two, but the good news is that a lot of these tests now are covered by insurance, mm -hmm. um, especially if you do have a family history or you leading to my next question. If you do have risk factors, diabetes, obesity, um, again, a family history, history of a stroke. And again, unfortunately, more and more patients, I know we're getting heavier and heavier. There's a, our risk for diabetes, especially since even since COVID has gone up. So is right now the number one risk factor by itself still diabetes? Is it more just everything now? All those things kind of rolled up into one where patients really need to be cognizant of the heart no matter how old they are? I mean, honestly, the number one risk factor is actually age. It's just okay. mostly a time under tension. How long have your arteries been sensing all these other risk factors that are potentially interacting with the artery walls? But metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance is probably the number one thing driving a lot of this. I totally agree. What I want to do now is kind of really quickly, and then we're going to get some really the cool new stuff that I know you're into, and I want to get your opinions on certain things, is no matter what, no matter when should somebody start getting screened? And I think my opinion, when should they get started getting screened? They should definitely get the basic lab work done initially. 
and they should probably, when should, I mean, I could phrase the question, make it a little simpler. When should somebody get beyond just the regular traditional lab work done being and getting an ultrasound and or the calcium scoring? Is that, or is it not a set age anymore? It's in it's in the starts in your teenager. It's all still the same question of this big formula that makes it, there's no perfect answer for anybody. It could be a 17 year old. It could be a 62 year old. It's not cookie cutter, good or bad. Correct. I mean, I used to think like everybody after the age of 40 should be doing this unless they've already had an event, but I think it probably should start earlier. I mean, I you know, consider myself a pretty good preventive cardiologist, but I think there honestly needs to be preventive pediatric cardiologists. Like they should be assessing this stuff way before they even get to me at the age of 18. I mean, even the newer guidelines say that like, you know, every baby before the age of one should probably have LPLA checked and then you know, their LDLC or an APOB, just to make sure that they don't have FH or familial hyperlipidemia. And then they start screening at like age eight, I believe is the kind of the new guidelines. So I think that's probably something that, you know, is fairly aggressive. And, you know, since I don't really interact with pediatricians, I don't know how much that's actually getting out to the community that they're doing that. But I would say for the average adult, that's probably listening to your podcast. If you're 18 years old and you've never had any of this stuff done, then probably just get at least the LPLA checked and an APOB and say, okay, well, those aren't in the super high risk bucket. Okay. Then I can go see my regular doctors and, you know, make sure my blood pressure is okay. My, you know, insulin, A1C, all that type of stuff is normal. So like I said, we're going to go into some of the cool new complicated stuff in a second, but in terms of change that people can make at home without medication, is it exercise? Is it good sleep? Is it diet? Is it all three kind of combined? Or is there some other lifestyle change that's really going to be life altering in that regard? I always talk about kind of like a four-legged stool. I mean, it's always going to be, you know, exercise, nutrition, or, you know, hallmarks, but you got to deal with your stress. You know, stress is ubiquitous, but you know, how well do you deal with your stress? Because stress is something that if you don't manage well, it's going to lead you to be more insulin resistant. It's going to raise your blood pressure. Yeah. Your blood's going to be stickier. There's all sorts of problems if you don't really deal with your stress well. And then that leads into poor sleep. You know, if you don't sleep well, everything goes to hell then. I mean, if you see me online enough, you know, hear me talk about mitochondria. So mitochondria, they, you know, they repair during sleep. So if you're not sleeping well, you basically have old engines you're working on the next day. So it's a combination of all four of those things. I totally agree. So now let's get to some of the cool new stuff that's out there heart related. One, I don't know where you fall on this. Uh, patients that are using like nitric oxide supplements are doing nitric oxide test swabs. For people who don't know, nitric oxide will help dilate the blood vessels. That's why a lot of people will do either nitric oxide or beetroot before the exercise to help boost things. So is that something that's really, I know you can do some nitric oxide some blood tests, I think some people say really are great. Some people say they don't mean much. So is that something that's ready for prime time or something that's still got a ways to go? No, I definitely think it's prime time. And that is like the bedrock of my practice is endothelial health. So the endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. You got approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels. And this endothelial cell is extremely important as the barrier between what floats in the lumen where the blood goes and what can get into the wall of the artery. And one of the major things that the endothelium produces is nitric oxide, which is a signaling molecule. It's a short-lived gas that only lasts a second or two, but that nitric oxide causes the muscle and the artery to relax. So flow improves. So that keeps blood pressure down, but nitric oxide also acts like Teflon or nonstick when it's released. So then the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the lipoproteins that are varying the cholesterol around, they just slide on through. They're not sticking to the artery wall. So without nitric oxide, you develop endothelial dysfunction. That's the first marker that the arteries are going to start developing plaque later on if you don't fix that. And yes, there are different supplements, but you know, always start with the free things. 
you know, be outside in the sun, when UVA wavelengths of light hit your skin, the blood vessels come to the surface, they release nitric oxide and dilate. When you eat your greens and beets, that stuff breaks down in your saliva, the nitrates break down, get into your stomach, ultimately get converted over to nitric oxide. So that's why if you ever see me in the office, you hear me ask about, you know, are you on acid blocking medicines? Because if you don't have acid in your stomach, you can't make that reaction happen. And you don't want to be using Listerine and scope and destroying all the good bacteria in your saliva that make that conversion for those nitrates and nitrites. And then the supplements, they can help. I mean, they can release nitric oxide when they dissolve. They can teach the body how to make more nitric oxide. And yes, it definitely can help with athletic performance because if you have more blood flow of the muscles to get oxygen nutrients in and get waste products out, muscle function tends to improve. You say to the point that I think patients are now starting to learn that's real in terms of not, I mean, one, I think I just tried to study it actually today that came out about the benefits of nitric oxide diffusely, like throughout the body, not just in terms of heart health and muscle that we're learning more and more about it. There's also a great speaker on it, Dr. Nathan Bryan, I don't know if you've ever met him or not, yep. who's trying to get the word out as well. And then, so in terms of the nitric oxide, you, again, the natural things are better. You also brought out the two points in terms of no strong mouthwash, especially Listerine, and as well as the acid blockers, because which I, I hate acid blockers unless it's a last resort to begin with because of the so many side effects they have between bone and everything else, but it's affecting your heart and your blood pressure and everything else. So two really simple things that you can do on top of exposing to some, which again, that's could just by doing that every morning, again, anybody goes on your social media, I'm jealous that you do it. You are so religious about it. I'm getting close. I'm not there as much as you do, but it's incredible. It's something very simple to do. And you mentioned the endothelium, another new thing that's out there, something called the glycocalyx, which is a part of that whole science that, like you said, is now gaining evidence in terms of, again, blood pressure, cholesterol. I think some initial studies are relating to potentially diabetes. There's a new product that I know you're familiar with called Arteriocell um, that works on that, that I know from what I've seen, again, non-cardiologist, the studies look pretty promising um, in terms of the reductions that we're seeing. So what could you speak on the glycocalyx and how it falls into everything else in the an Arteriocell, if you want to? Sure. And that is to something that I did not learn about in my cardiology uh, fellowship. I actually probably only known about it for the past you know, 18 months, 24 months. So if the endothelium is one cell thick lining your arteries, the endothelial glycocalyx lays on top of the endothelium. And it's like a cotton candy gel coat, essentially. It's made up of different polysaccharides, sugars, and different, uh, some called glycoproteins. So sugars on proteins. And it looks kind of like, you know, grass floating at the bottom of a, like a riverbed. And it has different clotting factors inside of it, different antioxidants inside this like little uh, grass coating essentially. And then when the blood is floating through there, the blood is stimulating these little hairs, these little grass follicles, and that then stimulates the endothelium to know what's floating in the blood. And so if there's a lot of red blood cells going by, the body's like, oh, it must be increase the flow, pump out more nitric oxide. But that gel coat is pretty sensitive. So high blood sugar, high insulin, high infection loads, you know, the virus that recently was going around the world, all those things damage the gel coat. And once the gel coat's damaged, now the endothelium's laid bare to what's floating through the blood. If the endothelium gets damaged, it stops releasing nitric oxide very efficiently. So there are products, you know, Arteriosil is a product that uh, has data that it helps regrow that glycocalyx. And they have very interesting data on, you know, plaque regression and carotid arteries. You know, they're doing studies for blood pressure. They're doing studies for, you know, erectile dysfunction because erectile dysfunction 
in many people is a marker of endothelial dysfunction. So, you know, if you can't make nitric oxide, you probably aren't gonna be able to have, you know, the erections that you want to have. So there's a lot of, you know, fascinating data coming out of uh, the endothelial glycocalyx world. That's, I'm so happy. Things in the cardiology world used to be, I mean, when I was a resident and even as my first many years in practice, it was very beta blocker, statins, maybe throw in Zetia. Now we finally, it's amazing. Like in four or five years, it's totally morphed to that perfect combination of, I don't say integrative, integrative and traditional where it should be, because again, where we were getting, wasn't fixing where we needed to be. So and then you brought up mitochondria a couple of times already. And again, we're going to lead right into red light from there. But mitochondria also can affect heart health. And then again, I know there's a lot of supplements out there that have potentially some data behind it, CoQ10, MitoQ, taurine, some other things. So where is that something that you're hoping to treat by just doing the other things and red light? Or is there some specific cardiac supplement panel that your patients can look to do to help a help the mitochondria, but also help the heart. Are you, where do you fall on that taking the, how well the supplements actually work for heart health? It is one of those cases where it's a individualized, you know, type of plan for people. And I'm always going to start with, you know, the circadian biology and things, you know, like photobiomodulation to stimulate mitochondrial function. But, you know, there's times and places to use supplementation when people are deficient. I mean, CoQ10 has a lot of <laughs> multiple research trials for, you know, patients with congestive heart failures, like the Q-Symbio trial that showed adding that on to ACE inhibitors and beta blockers, those patients tended to do better. But the question really is always that, you know, will these supplements actually get past the mitochondrial membrane and get into where you want them to actually work? And sometimes that's always a, I don't know, type of situation. So sometimes if there's certain supplements that at least theoretically could be beneficial and there's no real downside from taking them. I'm not opposed to people using them, but I tend to use them more in people who have like really bad cardiomyopathies. They got a very weak heart. You know, they have you know, uncontrollable atrial fibrillation. They have really nothing to lose, but the average person, you know, if they're not you know, already uh, getting proper sun exposure, earth and grounding, sleeping well, start with the basics first. And then, so leading, kind of going through that. So are you supportive? I know there are patients who would rather take supplements for high cholesterol than things like sterols and of course now um, bergamot things like that. Are you, the studies are meh, big medical word there, meh. (laughs) Or are you still more in line when they need it, you need to do the traditional type things. I mean, again, the studies with the the statins and Zeti are good. Again, there's statins have probably more haters than probably any other medicine out there in traditional medicine. So what are people who would like to slant traditional, what should they know about that? I think it really depends on what the patient's goals are. I mean, there's times and places that stands are the right tool for that person. You know, the high risk individual with, you know, open heart surgery bypass, they've had multiple stents and they're trying to avoid, you know, their, I think the record from one of the patients is like 15 stents. I mean, that's like what we call full metal jacket. Like their whole horny arteries look like a spider when you stand on the fluoro pedal, but you know, stands are tools use, you know, the tools for the right job. But I think it matters more what that ApoB number is than how you actually got it down there. Because there's people who are evolutionarily, you know, benefited by, you know, had a loss of function in the PCSK9 gene. They don't secrete that enzyme. They have naturally low ApoBs of like 20 to 30 their entire life. They basically are atherosclerosis proof. So it's more about having the low levels than it absolutely is using the statin to push it down there. Now there are pleiotropic effects of statins, you know. Lowers the inflammation, helps endothelial function, but you know, more people than probably know that they uh, can't tolerate them for muscle reasons than uh, you know even were studied. You know, in the studies, I think it usually says less than five percent people, you know, have to stop a stand because of muscle pains, but it's probably more you know like 20, 30, 40 percent of people have some type of muscle symptoms. So 
you know, some people just can't tolerate him. That's okay. There's a lot of other agents on the market today that can help. And, you know, many times there are, you know, certain nutraceuticals that can be beneficial as well. They just tend not to be as potent. So sometimes you got to use them in combination to, to really get the ApoB lowering, you know, down to your goal then. I like that. Yeah. So again, I agree. I mean, I think there are people who need the statins no matter what, especially the high risk or they have the calcium scores high, their family history. I know I have patients who their family history is like literally checkered with everybody's had a heart attack at 40. Okay. Then it's time that we need to do something here. So and before we switch over to red light, anything else that we didn't really hit that's really some patients should be knowing about the new advances in cardiology in terms of uh, li- cardiac prevention here? I think you hit upon them. I mean, if people are hearing about nitric oxide, endothelial function, endothelial glycocalyx, that's really where things need to be headed because that stuff gets damaged 10, 20 years before you're going to develop the plaque. And I think the one to kind of put on the back burner is, and it may not be available in your you know, location just yet, but this clearly CCTA, you know, CT coronary angiogram, it's going to be a really a novel game-breaking type of technology to tell you how much plaque you got and what you might need to do about it. I've had one or two patients do it so far here, but again, I think it's one of those things in the next six months to years are really going to be popular. So here in the Life Optimized Podcast, we're going to be talking a lot about red light. You're the first one to be talking about it. And again, you know, you talk about it a lot. So yeah, red light can be also be called PBM or photobiomodulation. And I mean, there's definitely things that people need to be aware of when either doing it at a facility or getting one for themselves. And a lot more people are trying to get it at home is you want to make sure that there's no leakage. You want to make sure there's no EMF. You want to know that. So there's a lot of different things you want to be careful of. You want to know how strong it is, uh, the power on any unit that you're getting. And again, I know you have certain ones that you really are a fan of compared to some of the other ones. So before we do a deeper dive, what should patients be looking for in terms of, again, when they start doing red light therapy? Sure. And so like red light therapy is definitely getting more popular in the U S it's been very, very popular in Europe and Russia since, you know, the 1970s. And that's what the majority of the literature initially came out of. And it's you know, due to the cold war, a lot of this stuff didn't get translated, but NASA was the really kind of the big pusher from, you know, the late nineties developing some of the led technology that went up to the space station. And then that technology has been you now, you know, used into the consumer world where now devices can be had by you know, the average person and they can use these devices to treat their musculoskeletal issues at home, because that's the main indication for these type of uh, panels. But, you know, the word is photobiomodulation, you know, so using light to modulate or change your biology. Where is the major you know, benefit? It's mostly a mitochondrial uh, story, but it's also the, uh, you know, an exclusion zone or structured water story. That's where these you know, wavelengths of light are actually, you know, being useful. I always call these panels supplements almost as a joke because from sun up to sundown, you always have the right wavelengths of red and infrared light. So in the summertime, it's not saying don't use a red light panel, but you have the sun outside in the Northern hemisphere, it's free, go use that stuff. But if you don't have access to it, or, you know, it's yeah, the wrong time of day for you, go ahead and use your panel. But you had mentioned some of those things, you know, there's various manufacturers of these devices, but it does come down to a couple of things that you really need to know. You need to know what wavelengths of light this thing puts out, you know, what color essentially. Most of them are going to be red and infrared, and lots of them will be combinations of red and infrared. Then you need to know what's somehow it's geeky. It's a quantum kind of physics type term, but you know, what is the irradiance or the power density? That's essentially how many photons are coming out of this device at one time. So I usually use the analogy, is it like a hose that just is dribbling out, or you have a fire hose that's blasting out? You know, if it's blasting out, 
you're not going to need as much time in front of the panel. And then the third metric really is the time. You know, is this something that you can use for a couple of minutes or, you know, it's a very low power device. You're going to have to use it for 30 minutes to get any benefit. Fortunately with red light therapy, it's, you know, almost impossible to actually harm yourself with it, but there is a underdose response. If you don't use enough photons, you don't get a response and you say, well, that stuff doesn't work for me. Well, you got to use enough photons for enough time to get the benefit, but it's a pretty wide window of benefit. I totally agree. And again, I need to know what you're getting yourself into. Right now, there's such a variance in terms of what each one of these panels do. Some of them are just garbage. Some of them are really, really good. And it seems like more and more people, the experts bring them out. They all seem to say the same brands. And I'll put that out later. I don't know if you do or don't want to mention specific brands. And that's up to you as we go on in terms of what you prefer and what you don't. So, I mean, again, from what I'm using patients is, again, it should be a minimum of 10 minutes, at least. And then depending on what type you have, you can do 10 on each, 10 front, 10 back, again, depending on what your goals are. And then I recommend at least three times a week for patients. Optimally, I know some people do it four or five times a week. Do you have, a, again, I assume you give various recommendations depending on what your goals are with the patients using the red light. Do they come to your office? You recommend them have a unit at home or is it probably a combo if you pay patients coming in from all over the country, but. Right, right. Yeah, it's combo. I mean, I usually will teach them how to use our panels. I also have the smaller panels here just so they can kind of demo them like, okay, this is the one I'm going to kind of go get at home and show them what to do with it. Yes. And that is the unfortunate thing is that, you know, red light therapy, you know, it isn't as um, consumer friendly just yet because, you know, all these research trials, they use very specific, you know, formulas, you know, and they give you exact jewels and to translate that into what you're supposed to do at home. It's sometimes really hard, but that data is going to be coming. So for the most part, yes, the session is going to be between 10 and 20 minutes. How often depends on if it's an acute injury, you're probably doing it every day till the injury is better. If it's kind of more just maintenance, maybe it's two to three times a week. So it really depends, but you know, there's new devices that, you know, are for brain photomodulation. You know, if you have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you know, and you don't have much to lose, you're probably using this thing every single day. If you're just a biohacker and just, you know, needed to kind of amp up your brain before you take a test, well, then it's just kind of an as needed type of situation. Yeah, that's what I want to highlight. You brought it up is, I mean, red light's not just for biohackers and to look cool on social media. It's, I mean, there's definitely some data that backs up. I know there's some really good preliminary studies you had mentioned for neurodegenerative issues like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I know that we're, again, they're using it a little bit for blood pressure issues and again, for chronic injuries. I know I've seen personally and for patients that they've gotten a pretty good response in using red light in their programs. Again, the other thing people need to know, you don't need to buy the $2,000, $5,000 unit some brands have units, small units that are just as suitable for you. And I always tell my patients, definitely try, go to a center that has one and try and say you do with it before you go spend money on it. Because in most areas now, it's pretty much somewhat you'll find one of them out there. I'm not as big a fan of the beds as I am of the panels, just because of distance and a lot of other stuff that I've been told by scientists and I've seen kind of anecdotally but it's something that definitely should be part of your routine. And again, you brought up the benefit it does, it gives to your mitochondria, which is again, the, everybody uses the analogy now, it's the battery part of your cell. It also can help potentially increase nitric oxide, which again, we, went, we talked about before. It helps with gut health. It just has so many great benefits to it. Again, there's some things you can also add on to it. I mean, there's, again, everything from exercise to supplements like CoQ10 to I'm a methylene blue person, which is going to be a whole topic of another podcast, but uh, there's so many different things that you want to do to 
amplify your mitochondria. Eventually what we do, no matter if who you are, you want to stack things on, find that one, two things that works well. And then you could add on things to your red light therapy. And again, I think within the next two years or so, there's going to be some really good studies coming out that are going to show for specific illnesses that being better than it is now. Now, do you do, you don't do the IV red light. Do you the IV light or do you? I've done it personally on myself twice, but I don't offer it in my practice. There's a, a colleague I have in the St. Louis area that has one of the, uh, the Weber endo lasers and she uses it for her patients with autoimmune conditions and chronic infections, but it's fascinating. You know, you go get an IV and they, place a, a microfilament in the vein and then looks like you had a lightsaber lighting up inside you. Yeah. I personally just wanted to use red because I knew that would help structure the water in my blood. Um, I didn't really want to use any of the other colors. And yeah, I did feel an energy boost for an hour or two afterwards, but knock on wood, you know, I don't have any chronic illnesses. Nothing feels bad to me. I just want to see what it felt like. So it felt pretty good for about a day and then wore off for me, but here's someone with chronic fatigue or you know, a major autoimmune condition. And something to put in the back of your mind that there is some interesting, you know, research coming mostly out of Germany on the use of this IV blood irradiation. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of that's coming out of Germany and the rest of Europe. Like, like you mentioned, a lot of this alternative <laughs> stuff comes from, uh, we're way behind in that regard, but again, <laughs> that's a story for another day. So we're going to wind in down a little bit here. So what other things do you have your patient do for mitochondrial health or anything besides exercise, which helps boost mitochondria, anything else specifically you do in terms of help boosting their routine? I mean, it's always the basics. It's, you know, don't miss the sunrise. So you set your circadian clocks for the day. You know, ideally, you know, when you're outside, try to be connected to the earth. So, you know, there's different earth and grounding shoes if you don't uh, want, can't or won't walk around barefoot outside. Okay. Um, what they're grounding? That I've never heard of. People. They're actually grounding shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm currently inside, but when I'm outside, yeah, the, the shoes I got on, you know, they have a, either a copper plug or they got a, a different type of a, conductive material to be able to actually get right into your bare foot. So yeah, so you can be connected to the earth and accepting electrons from the earth when you're outside. But then people are watching this, you know, since 2017, pretty much never going to catch me inside without some type of, you know, blue blocking glasses, you know, especially if I'm on a device, just because I'm just that hardcore about you know, keeping my circadian rhythms, melatonin levels optimized. And then at night, you know, it's really, you know, shutting down the, the screens as early as possible and, you know, making sure your sleep is optimized because without optimal sleep, nothing goes right. So we brought up a couple of times just so people understand now. So we're learning more and more that your circadian rhythm, the way that you live your 24 hours of the day, the way you do certain things are certain times that are that there are better times to do a lot of different things and you want to maintain a set cycle every day. That's almost as more important than when you do things within the day. How does that affect somebody's hist heart prevention as more than anything else? And then and again, there's a lot of different things, but in the course of this podcast here. Sure. The two big things is, you know, blood pressure has a cyclical rhythm. Typically blood pressure starts rising between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. When cortisol starts to rise to get you ready to wake up for the day. And, you know, statistically that's the time when most people have heart attacks. You know, cortisol makes your blood stickier. It's raising your blood pressure. So when you check your blood pressure, you're going to see that it's typically rising in the morning time and then the evening time it's going down, you know, and then from a cardiovascular standpoint, you know, I get the question too, is like, what's time, you know, best time of day to exercise? Well, first answer is anytime you're actually going to do it would be the best time. But if you really want to get the best strength gains, best performance, it's going to be in the afternoon when your muscles are most primed to it. You know, that's when the muscles circadian clock is at peak efficiency. There you go. So you brought it up once, I think. So I'm going to ask the question because, again, I ask questions I get asked a lot, and 
we got you here is how much do you use patients wearables right now? Do you even look at the wearable data patients have? I mean, in terms of HRV and some of the other stuff that's out there, or you just don't, again, not ready for prime time yet. Yeah, I was I'm definitely one of those people that was a early, you know, Aura Ring user and Whoop and, and, you know, tried a bunch of different toys and such. And, you know, a lot of them are interesting and, you know, I commend people to track their numbers, but after a while, you know, are those numbers actionable? Are you doing something different with that information? Most of the time people will just start collecting numbers and they're not doing anything with it. Then the other thing is, you know, once you know more about how the world and the mitochondria actually work is, you know, what trade-offs are you using having these devices connected to you 24-7? So I'm mostly talking about the non-native EMFs that are coming off of these devices. So if your device has Bluetooth and it, it's pinging your body all night while you sleep, well, the mitochondria are basically getting radar jammed while you're sleeping, collecting this information. So I tend to think that the wearables should be used to record whatever you're recording, but you probably do not want to have these things on you 24-7, especially when you're sleeping. And now there's a new couple of new ones out that you actually wear on your head, which really freaked me out for sleep. I'm like, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul here. You know me, know your sleep scores are, but you're again, you may be getting worse side effects from the native EMFs there. So, and the Bluetooth. So I totally agree with that. I think there's going to be happy medium. And I think there's some new cooler ones that you don't have to wear and you can get enough information. Mm -hmm. So we're going to fin wind up here. So is there something out, one other fact that people should know out there about cardiac prevention? That atherosclerosis is common, but heart attack doesn't have to be. You know, it's a combination of endothelial function. So mostly it's stories about how much nitric oxide you can make. Two is how much inflammation your body has, especially chronic inflammation. And there's blood tests that you can assess. And three, you know, what is your ApoB levels? If you get those three things right, you know, probably 90% of the story is taken care of for having healthy cardiovascular system. So the more we will learn today, ApoB, 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 mitochondria, keep your circadian rhythm and get outside in the morning, get the sun and everything else can kind of fall into place there. But the, the, a lot of these things that we heard from Dr. Twyman today is that you can do a lot just by lifestyle, it, doing things, simple lifestyle, and then adding, getting the data that once it, again, you can't, you don't guess, you need to test. And then you can get that extra pieces in there. There are doctors all over. I mean, Dr. Twyman is one of the leading experts in preventative cardiology. And he, again, he's great at pulling a combination of technology with the traditional, with the functional, and just making it a perfect uh, combination there. So where can patients find you um, in terms of just getting some information? I know you're on social media and as well as if they want to set up an appointment with you. Sure. Just first off, I want to thank you for the opportunity to chat. It's always great talking with somebody who's this deep in the weeds and in integrative preventive medicine and knows all the, you know, the bottle hacking stuff as well. But if people are interested in following more with me, I'm you know, most active on Instagram. My handle is you know, Dr. Twyman. D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. Every Monday night, 6 p.m. Central Time, have some type of topic. I go live and talk about subclinical atherosclerosis, endothelial function. Tonight, I'm actually going to do a mitochondria 101. You know, what are the mitochondria and how do they actually make energy? And then if people want to follow me on my newsletters, you can get access to that off my website. It's just the same thing, drtwyman.com. Okay, great. So thanks for hopping on. We're going to post all the notes and all those connections to him so you could follow up. And he, again, is, I know I've seen a couple of his IG lives and they're very, very informative in response to all different questions. So thanks for hopping on and uh, have a good rest of your day. I'm sure we'll talk soon about something. Sure, sure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. com.